0: Well, we're coming to the end of a, I'm not going to close it, but we're coming to the end of another wonderful youth meeting. I hope that all of you young folks are going to go home with the feeling that you've been at a hallmark event, not just for the history of the fact that this is the first time we've had a youth meeting in this building. I can go back to the first youth meetings we had on this property. I was in the very first youth meetings on these grounds over across the way. And you can say after this youth meeting that you've been in the first youth meeting in this building. That's a privilege to be able to say. As beautiful as this facility is and the spirits of the people, I want to, before I say anything else, say how much not only I've appreciated the youth meeting itself and how much I've appreciated the spirit I felt from you as youth, which I have been saying that for years. It is a wonderful thing when it takes no effort to be able to say that we've got a wonderful group of young people. You don't have to choke it down and say, well, except for a few or except for these 50 problems that happen. Isn't it a blessing to know, and I guess I'm saying this to the adults, that there is a generation in place to carry this on with the quality of these young people. It's a precious group of young men, precious group of young women. And then I appreciate, of course, as we always do when we're here in Louisville, the courtesy and the consideration and the hospitality that is just a hallmark of this local assembly. It is a hallmark of this assembly. You could define hospitality and order by the way this assembly operates and that's a wonderful thing. So appreciate, Brother Gillespie, what we've seen in the meeting thus far, appreciate what we've received. I came to the meeting with my notebook empty. I didn't come with any pre-planned thing to say. I still don't have anything pre-planned to say. I didn't come with any words. Now I'm gonna say that and show you my notebook. I didn't come with anything, as I said, but here's one of the many pages I took, filled to the brim with things people said, statements they made. I brought it up with me because though my memory tends to be good in some areas, sometimes it isn't, and I do wanna give credit where credit's due. If somebody said something, I wanna reference back to who said it. If there was a song that I felt like was especially poignant, and there were a number of them, then I want to remember that. So I brought my notebook up with me, not as a tag to keep me on track, other than to remind me that there were some things already done. And that's a record of the things that were already done. We use this phrase sometimes, the faintest of ink is better than the best of memories. Isn't it a precious thing that we have the ability to be able to look back on some things? once so in a while and remind ourselves of things that were said or done or events... Part of what was at the very beginning of this meeting, Brother Ray opened up with some words, and then of course the, the ministerial brethren opened up, and I can't recall Brother Gillespie, so forgive me if you were the one who first brought up Psalms 145, or if Brother Turner had mentioned that you had talked about it, but it seems as if the, the tone of the meeting has been about several things. One of them is a multi-generational faith. And we want one generation to pass this down to the next generation. Isn't that what we want? No, you don't want to just feel that way as far as our older saints or our middle-aged generation or wherever you'd place yourself as adults. We want you as young people to feel that way. That you want to pass this down. We don't want you to feel like you're just beneficiaries. You are. And you are beneficiaries of an incredible inheritance. There's things you've been given through the years in these youth meetings. Things you were given in this youth meeting that are incredible treasures. You just aren't going to find anywhere. There's experiences that you had. Other Stevie here. I was there yesterday in the beginning part when he was praying. I'm going to tell you, it blessed my soul to pray with you, Stevie. And he came up to me and forgive me if this is your testimony, but he said, I could hear myself speaking in tongues in my head. He hadn't spoken in tongues in his voice yet. He goes, I can hear myself speaking in tongues in, in my head. And I thought, let it come out your mouth and you'll know for sure. I'm not claiming the office of a prophet, but I told Stevie, I said, I can almost guarantee you, you're going to get the Holy Spirit this meeting. Isn't it a blessing? Do you know what that did? That linked him in to a generational promise that goes back to his family sitting here. And now he's linked in to a generational legacy of spiritual life. What a precious thing. We want you to receive some of these generational things. We've got a God that is a multi-generational God. He doesn't just intend to work with one generation. It's his intention to work with multiple generations just think of some of the titles that are used for God in the Bible. Sometimes you'll hear him referred to as the God of Abraham. But you know, he's got a longer title than that. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Do you realize what he's saying when people call him that? He was the God of my grandfather. He was the God of my father. He was the God of my great-grandfather, however you want to organize it. He is a multi-generational God. He wants to have relationships with his people in a multi-generational way. What I mean by that is he wants the generation that exists to pass this down to another generation. He wants that generation, as Brother Gillespie was talking about initially, pass that down to another generation. And then Brother Ellswick did such a nice job as every single speaker has. Every single person that spoke and has done such a nice job left some treasure here for you to take home with you. And Brother Ellswick mentioned one of the things that really stuck out to me, Brother Ellswick, you said, and it's a powerful statement, but it's not something new. You said, God has a plan for your life. You know what his plan is for your life? He wants you to take this on. What you've received, he doesn't want it to lay fallow. He wants you to take this on and do something with it. You may not realize just how valuable what you've received is. I was thinking as Brother Stevenson was talking here about some of his experiences. And Brother Ross was talking about some of his experiences in the meeting we had upstairs. And others have as well. Talked about some of the experiences they've gone through to get them where they've gone. And how some of those weren't experiences you would think would be productive. You'd think they'd be counterproductive. Bad things happened. It didn't go the way I wanted. You know, I imagine all of you would agree if you're being honest with yourselves. Do you know when things don't go the way you want? That's always bad, isn't it? If it doesn't go the way you want, that's a bad thing, right? Right? It's not a bad thing. Maybe the way you want it to go is the worst possible thing that could happen to you. It's not always a bad thing. I completely agree with what you said, Brother Stevenson, about how God doesn't set you up for failure. And you had quoted that. But I'm going to qualify it a little bit, so forgive me. I mean it in, the, I, in complete agreement with you. God doesn't set you up for failure unless you're on the wrong track. If you're on the wrong track, God will set you up for failure. God's never going to set you up for failure, though, in terms of your life with him. He's never going to set you up so you'll lose your relationship with him. The only way he'll set you up for failure is if you're going down the wrong direction. He may have put a lot of roadblocks in your way that you are going to stumble over and have one problem after another. And he may also do some things in your life that will try to bump you into the right channel in the right direction for your choices. I really appreciated all that you young men and women added in your testimonies and statements. And one of the things that stuck out to me, this young man from Kansas City, Brother Clark, gave that story about the man with the wheelbarrow. Wasn't that an interesting picture to have in your mind? Here's a man going back and forth with this wheelbarrow. I'm not going to go through the whole story. You heard it last night. Man going back and forth this wheelbarrow and telling him, you think I can do it? He goes back, well, yeah, you can do it. You know, it's easy to have confidence in something when you're not involved in the process, isn't it? Once he got put in the wheelbarrow, now you got to have confidence that not only can he do it, but there is another factor. He can do it with the weight of you sitting in there. That changes things a little bit, doesn't it? You know, God does things like that. God demonstrates sometimes that he's capable. By some of the things he takes us through, some of the faith building things that he does in our lives. See, God wants to build your life on a foundation of faith, but it's not just a one-time foundation. It's not just that you claim a belief in him. He's going to have experiences that you're going to go through. They're going to build lines of experience. Something happened and I know my God is real. I know he's real. He did something that demonstrates his reality in a way only God could do. That's an anchor, isn't it? When you know God's done something, he's answered a prayer for you. He's met you in some way. When I was a young child, probably not yet old enough to be in the youth, maybe 10 or 11, 12, right in that range. It was before I received the Holy Spirit, I received the Holy Spirit at 12 years of age. I was out in the woods all the time. I always had to be exploring, climbing trees, you know, getting into whatever kind of trouble I could get into in the woods. We had a vocational school not far from where we lived. Behind that vocational school was a deep woods. We were back there exploring one day, and in in the middle of doing some construction around the vocational school, they dug out a big, big pit, probably 30 feet across by 15 feet deep, and they'd filled it with water. I don't know if they planned on making a fishing hole out of it or what their goal was, but they filled it up with water, and somebody had built a little raft and set it on the side there with tires on the bottom, you know, a homemade raft, tires on the bottom of that, and just strips of wood, and you know what's going to happen when we saw that, don't you? You think we were going to just, oh, isn't that nice? There's a raft, there's a pond, and walk on by. You know it's not going to happen. I'll tell you what happened, and let, let me tell you how stupid this was. I couldn't swim. So, going out on a 15 foot deep by 30 foot pond is probably not the most intelligent choice. But how could you resist? There's a raft right there. So, we got on this raft, one of my friends and I, one of my buddies, and the other one was on the shore and we got as long as sticks as we could get so we could propel ourselves across that little pond. We didn't know how deep it was. Got on this raft and got out and floated into the middle of the pond and just sat there. We didn't move anymore and we were trying to get back to the shore and I had a stick that was taller than I am. It was at least, well, it was at least 10 foot tall. I put it down into the water to my shoulder trying to reach the bottom to move and nothing. So we're trying to figure out how we're gonna splash our way to the shore without falling in. And in the middle of doing that, my friend with me, who wasn't really much of a friend when he did this, thought he was going to save the situation, and he leaned way out over the edge of the raft to try to do this and tipped the raft, and in I went. It was probably one of the most frightening experiences I've ever had as a child. The water was dark, and you know, any of you that have been underwater, the pressure of that water pressing on you, I didn't know how to swim, didn't know anything about swimming. I just sank down to the bottom. And I just had enough thought, I guess, or the blessing of the Lord, that I launched myself up from the bottom. I got down as low as I could and just pushed with all my strength. Came up out of the bottom and went back down under the water. I didn't have any way to grab the raft. I was wet and my hands just slid off the raft. Went down the second time and this will tell you he wasn't much of a friend. Though he was a friend. He was trying to help. He started moving that raft around thinking he's going to position it so when I come up I can grab it. And he moved it right where I was headed. Second time I pushed, I was losing my air at that point and I could tell, I'm almost completely out of whatever air was in my lungs and I'd better get out of here as fast as I can. My strength I was losing too from all the effort of pushing up through that water. So I came up the second time and that raft was right above where my head was coming and I slammed head first into the bottom of the raft and blacked out and I can remember just sinking down to the bottom and thinking, this is it. I don't have enough strength to get back up. All the air blew out of me and I took in water and I thought, it's done. Something gave me this strength, and I don't believe it was anything in this frail mortal body of mine. Something gave me the strength to push one last time. And I pushed up to the water, and all I had the strength to do was reach up when I came to the top. I didn't have the strength to paddle or anything. I just reached up. And you know, as I reached up, I reached up and something was there, and I put my hand around it. It was a branch. During this time, there was a man who had been working on the property. At least that's what he told us. He'd been working on the property, and had heard the noise back there. The other boys were yelling. And he came back there and found us there and he got a big stick. I didn't even know any of this and was holding it out over where I was coming up. And when I came up, I just grabbed hold of that stick. You want to talk about how much chance would be in that? And he pulled me into the shore and I can tell you he gave me a pretty serious berating. He chewed me out. There's a simpler way of saying it. He chewed me out pretty good, gave me a working over and then sent me back home It's one of those examples of when you do something very bad that you really don't get punished for because the punishment was built into the crime. (laughs) I was terrified from that point forward of doing it again. But what I didn't know is that that whole time my mother had been at home and a terrible feeling had come over her. And she felt like the Lord said to her, something is wrong with your son, he's in danger. She fell down to her knees and started crying out to the great God of heaven. Now, here's the best part of the whole story. The best part to me is I got out of there alive. But there's an even better part. The next day, she wanted to go over to the joint vocational school and to thank the man for saving her son's life. And they had just started to show up for some of the summer school sessions. And there were one of the directors was there when she came over. She took me over with her. I heard this own ears. And she said there was a man here that told us he was landscaping around the property for the school for the summer. She goes, can you please tell me his name and where I can find him? He said, we haven't had anyone working here this summer. Nobody has been working on this property. That was the angel of the Lord, young people. I wouldn't be standing here right now if God had not been on my side. If it wasn't for the Lord, it was on my side. I wouldn't be abiding in any sense of the word. But that was one of those linchpin experiences God gave me to let me know he's real. He's real. You know, he's real. Not just in some kind of an intellectual way that you'll find him in here. You'll find him in here. But not just as words on a page, not just as a description like a resume. He's real. He's genuine. He is the real thing. That's what's so important about what you feel down here around the altar. You're feeling the reality of his presence. Praise his holy name. So there's ways that he builds our faith that way. Sometimes at the most critical points in our life, I received the Holy Spirit, I said a minute ago, or a couple of minutes ago, just after I turned 12. I only thought about this just here lately, but I received it in Akron. We've got our local Bible school, but we often have ones from Akron will come to ours and we'll go to theirs since we're close enough. But Elijah's on his way. Let it be. Let it be a heritage because I received the Holy Spirit the week right after Bible school in a service that was about the Bible school when I was 12 years of age on July 3rd, the day 4th, 4th of July. Both of my daughters in a Bible school in Akron received the Holy Spirit. My eldest received the Holy Spirit, and then my youngest has always been this way. You know, when my oldest daughter learned to ride a bike, my youngest daughter was by far too small to be riding a bike without training wheels. But she said immediately, Daddy, take the training wheels off. She wasn't about to not be riding a bike like her sister. So Hallie, the next year went to Akron and she got the Holy Spirit a day after to a year, a year and a day later. So Elijah's gonna be on his way. If he doesn't get it in Mansfield first, he's gonna be on his way to Bible school in Akron. We already know it works. So I was twelve years of age. It was July 3rd, as I said, my father he didn't know I was gonna receive the Holy Spirit. He was somebody who worked a great deal of hours, so he wasn't in church often, wasn't faithful. And I don't think he even got into the service when I received the Holy Spirit till near the end of the service. But my father loved fireworks and he didn't just like going to see them. It didn't matter if they were legal or not. He was going to buy all the fireworks he could, cross the state lines, whatever he had to do, and then come back and fire them off around the neighborhood, which the neighbors loved. The local authorities didn't, but the neighbors enjoyed that. Well, he had bought a whole lot of fireworks. And the night of July 3rd, I got the Holy Spirit. He went home so excited that he set off all the fireworks. And I mean, he set them all off. They all went all over the place. Neighbors are yelling and cheering. And they had their own fireworks show in our backyard. And I don't mean uh, moon rockets. I'm talking about some big fireworks that were going off above our house. He was so excited I would got the Holy Spirit. You know why I needed it so bad right then? Not only because we all need it and how critical it is, young people. That was the last time I can remember my father at home before he left our family. What an important time that God would make me his son. You realize God adopted me right before my own natural father left? Isn't that just like God? God was just taking me under his wing, saying, I already know what your future holds, and I am going to make sure you know I'm here with you, that I'll be a father to you. I did not make positive choices in the years that followed after that. You'd like to think someone filled with the Holy Spirit. Don't follow this track, young people. If God fills you with the Holy Spirit, you use that to be faithful to God for the rest of your days. Use that strength. Use that insight that the Holy Spirit brings to be faithful to God. The conditions of what I was going through in my life upset my spiritual equilibrium. It was my fault. It was my choices, but it was created by some conditions. You know, to some degree, processes will produce who you are. You're a product of processes. That doesn't mean you can excuse yourself and say, well, I've had a hard life, so I can act however I want. Listen, young people, I wouldn't be standing here right now if I made that excuse. At some point, I had to take responsibility and say, the choices I'm making have to be better choices. It doesn't matter how bad it was, and I can tell you. I won't tell you here in this kind of environment for the sake of time and other reasons, but I made a lot of bad choices and a lot of things that I had to experience that were very negative. Let me go back just a moment and say this. I was born with a silver spoon in my mouth in every sense that you could use that expression. We sometimes talk like that when we're talking about being born in the body. You say, if you're born in the body of Christ, you're born with a silver spoon in your mouth. You certainly were. What a blessing. I was born with a silver spoon in my mouth in multiple ways. My father was very successful in the business world. He made quite a bit of money. So we had a nice home, a very nice home in a very nice neighborhood. Had all the things that you would think, luxuries of life. And I had a far greater inheritance in the fact that I was born in the body of Jesus Christ. And God filled me with the Holy Ghost. I have made that point to lead you to the next element of this. If I hadn't thought about giving my testimony like this, but it's part of my testimony. When my father left our family, he left in every sense of the word. There was no more support for my mother. If she wasn't going to go with him and he was leaving church and leaving family, he was going far out away from everything. If she wasn't going to follow him, he wasn't going to continue supporting her, which means he just cut off the house payments, the electric. Can you imagine doing this to your children? He didn't pay the electric bills, didn't pay the gas bills. It was cold in the winter for a little while until the family came together and helped us. Isn't that a horrible place to be? He was, I guess, thinking he was going to force her hand, and he didn't. And let me tell you something, that integrity in her choices, that she was not going to have her hand forced, no matter what he put her through, is another reason I'm standing here right now, because he would have taken us far from this body. In the middle of that time, because of those conditions, I started making some poor choices. We moved from a very nice neighborhood to the inner city, living in the projects. And right at the time, you want to talk about bad timing, right at the time we moved into these projects, because my mother had not had a job for years, my dad had been the sole supporter. Right at the time we moved into the projects, the two biggest gangs in the nation begin their work in that part of Akron, right where I was living. I was surrounded by the Bloods and the Crips were the two biggest gangs at that time. I was surrounded by gangs of different kinds. Got to the point, we knew each other first name basis. That's nothing to brag about, by the way. But I had a first name basis as most of the gang leaders in Akron had fought with them or fought against them and just had been so hurt in my spirit, I suppose, by losing my father and losing everything we had and being in a very desperate situation that I just started making very poor choices. You know what was amazing during that whole time? In spite of that, God was still on my side. I heard such good feedback from Brother Andy Hazelip's testimony yesterday in all the talks, but talking about how there's no guarantee of that. There's no guarantee. You better not make choices, young people, thinking, well, Brother Bear did such and such. I'm going to tell you some things. He did such and such. I could probably do it too. God will do the same thing with me and deliver me. There's no guarantee of anything. It's just the love of God. God's love and mercy and grace are not something that you can force on Him. They are a free offering of His own at His own discretion. Meaning he, it's his will. You can't force his hand either and say, God, I'm your child, so you have to take care of me. You better live a life that will make him want to take care of you. But let me tell you something. If God loves you, he will deliver you from some things. He delivered me from some of those things. When you're in an environment like that, you're surrounded by those kind of conditions. And without going into details, I not only was fighting all the time. I had shots fired at me many times. Carried a gun most of the time. Everyone in in my company were carrying guns. That's the only way you could feel secure and safe and feel like you might not get killed yourself is if someone thought you had a gun. Let me give you an example in the middle of that of something that was just astonishing that I didn't even register at the time. We were driving in a car down the road and everybody in the car was armed and I was sitting in the front seat beside the driver and there was someone behind me that was just chambering and unchambering a round out of that gun. And then he put it back in the clip, put it in there, chamber and unchambering, just playing with this gun. And right in the middle of him fooling around with this gun, he was directly behind me. It's closer to me and Brother Holden is right now. Right in the middle of that, he lifted up the gun to chamber that round and it fired. Everyone in the car knew it fired. You could hear the report. You could see the smoke because it was a very cheap gun. You could see the sparks come out the end as that projectile left the chamber. It was going straight for me where I was sitting in that seat in the front seat. We heard the thump as it hit the seat after the report, which really you would have heard the report first, but we heard the thump as it hit the seat and they hit the brakes. The doors in the car flew open. Of course, they all tumbled out thinking I'd just gotten shot for sure. Everyone in the back seat saw the gun fire. They saw it fire right at me. Were patting me down and searching me, looking for where I'd gotten shot, not a wound on me anywhere. And they started looking for where could the bullet have gone? I don't know where it went. Still don't know. I know where it went. There was a hole in the back of the seat, right about chest level, where I had been turning and facing him. There was a hole in the front of the seat where that bullet had passed through and there were no more holes anywhere, not in me or that car. Somewhere between that seat and my back, which is thin as a piece of paper, that bullet left this world. You know what I should have been asking at that time, young people? Who could have done that? Who could take that projectile fired at that velocity of probably 1,200 feet per second? Who could have taken that projectile out of this world before it hit me? That's what I should have been thinking about. But it's amazing, I didn't think about that. It just registered, well, isn't that something? Went on with my crazy life. All those things, though, were storing up in the back of my mind. All those things were being laid up there like snow on the top of a mountain that with the right shift, it's going to come down like an avalanche. But I didn't recognize them. I didn't even think about them being there. And I was going on with the lifestyle that I'd been living. As I said, God was amazingly helping me being in the area where we lived in the projects, the only school that I could go to was the worst school in the whole city for violence, for gang activity. And one of the very best schools was actually closer to me, but the way they drew the lines for the schools, it was only two miles away. The other school was probably 10 miles away. But the way they drew the lines, I was on the wrong side of the line by one block, one block closer. And I could have gone to what was a very good school at that time. And I got a letter in the mail and why I got the letter, I don't know, saying if you're interested in Naval ROTC, there's only one school in Akron that has Naval ROTC and it's Garfield High School. If you're interested, you'll be able to go to Garfield High School. And I I wasn't interested in anything, but I was interested in getting out of there. So I said, well, that sounds good. I'll do that. And I came to love that four years of doing that. And I'm singing to Brother Stevenson because there's some similarities, especially done in the future with that. But left church during my high school years I was living a very rough life as I said fighting all the time this is just a picture of how rough my life was so this didn't make me rough but I want you to picture this use your imagination you'll have to use your imagination imagine me with a full thick head of hair that's the first thing you got to imagine now I'm going to ask you to stretch your imagination a little further imagine me with a flowing locks of hair down my back could you even picture that well, if you dig enough in the picture albums of our family, you'll find some pictures. I don't want you digging in there. I, I don't want even want my daughters looking at them. I don't want them seeing Daddy looking like he's lost his mind. Now, if you don't think that was bad enough, I grew up in the 80s. That's, I told you, I was in the first youth meetings here, and I had left for a few years. That's when all this was going on with my father and these other things. Anybody here know what a mullet is? What are you laughing about? I had a mullet that was the most glorious thing I thought you could have. I took that as flowing locks and primped them up and had that long hair down my back. In fact, when I came back to church, I think I've told this in a youth meeting, but this is just how stupid I was. When I came back to church, I knew I had to cut my hair, but I couldn't bear to lose it. Now, this may not apply to youth, because you may have heard this name, but I know those of you that are my age know this. How many people know who the new kids on the block were? They were a bunch of knuckleheads that were singing at that time. And they all had these little tails. Their hair was fairly short, but they had these little tails that went down their back. So I decided I'm going to have the best of both worlds. I'm coming back to church. And I'm gonna cut my hair, but I'm not gonna cut all of it. I'm gonna leave a long tail and you know what? Brother Moore had just come to Akron at this time and what a blessing he was to me. I told you I'd lost my father and God was a father to me. And then right when I started coming back to the Lord, he just dropped a perfect father for me right into that church. And he still is, I love him like a father. Now, I thought Brother Moore won't notice. He wouldn't even know if I've got this long tail. I just keep my hair right at the line of my collar and tuck it down. I tortured myself. It only lasted a couple of services, if anyone even knew it was there, because I had that long tail of hair down my back pulling on my neck the whole service long. It was so miserable. And trying to make sure no one knew it was there, you know, and it's running down my back and I'm pulling at it, I thought, this is not worth the glory of having this long tail. There was nothing glorious about it it was a foolish thing but it just gives you an idea of the state of mind i was in at that time but i told you i was in rotc for four years and in spite of all the things that i was doing that were wrong i was very successful in that and i don't personally think it had anything to do with any qualities of my own i just think it was like joseph in egypt god just blessed me and sometimes in spite of myself i was very successful and by the time i got to the end of my fourth year of ROTC, I was the most decorated officer that had been in naval ROTC anywhere in the United States. And I had a a rear admiral that had already written a commendation for me to go to Harvard University to go on through their law school program and then to go into the military with a bump up in officer status. A bump up to uh, what would have been a lieutenant position at that time. And all that sitting on my plate, acting a fool and had all those things sitting in front of me. And halfway through my senior year, I got into a fight with somebody and I really thought my motives were right. I was defending somebody that was much smaller that they were picking on and got into a fight with somebody. And I had a principal that was very frustrated by the fact that I was successful in spite of my bad ways. And so he'd put policies in specifically to try to get rid of me. One of them was if you miss one day of school, your entire letter grade drops. Every day you miss, your letter grade drops again. (laughs) And I was missing school all the time. I wasn't there half the time, but for some reason I was doing all right. So my letter grades were dropping, things weren't going well, and I ended up getting in this fight and got expelled from school and lost all of that. Lost that scholarship to Harvard University. Lost my opportunity to go into the Navy in that way to serve. But you wanna know something? You're gonna maybe wonder why I'm about to say this. If it wasn't for the Lord that was on my side, Do you know if I had gone to Harvard University, if I had gone into the Navy as an officer, I would have never come out. Just like Brother Stevenson was talking about. If you'd gone back, there is something about that system that, that draws you. If you have any kind of love of order and things to be done right and precisely, I would have never come out. The type of connections you make in an Ivy League school and the type of promotional opportunities there are in the Navy when you're being promoted that way, I would have never left there. I would have never That did something to me as well. It didn't make me feel better. I was mad. I was angry. I'd lost my dad. We'd lost our home. We were living in a very dangerous area. I was dealing with problems all the time. Now the one hope for me to get out of this has just been taken away from me. You know who I got mad at? I should have got mad at myself, don't you think? I got mad at God. I thought, why have you done this to me, Lord? Why have you taken me through this? You know, God never left me. You, know, you ought to thank God when he goes with you when you're not going with him anymore. Amen. He went with me even when I wasn't going with him anymore. And Brother Stevenson mentioned these little choices that lead you there. It is absolutely true that it's little choices. I always use this example of Lot in the 13th to 14th chapters of Genesis and then in the 19th chapter. In the 13th chapter, I think it's, I don't, I'm not going to go there, but in, around the 10th and the 12th verses, you're going to see what happened with Lot. First, he had his eyes towards Sodom. He started looking over there with a desire for it. Then he pitched his tent toward it just a couple verses later. He's got his tent pitched in that direction. So every time he walks out, he can look at it, what he loves most. Isn't that sad? Because he wasn't even living there. He wasn't a citizen. Don't do that, young people. Don't get your eyes entranced by the things of this world. And say, it's all right because I'm still in church. I'm still going to hold my integrity, but I'm just looking. Don't look. Turn your head away. It will entrench you, it will mesmerize you. Brother Brantley did such a beautiful job of presenting that. It will mesmerize you, it will. It'll hypnotize you. You won't realize what it'll do to your heart. And then eventually, Lot, you'll find him in the 14th chapter. He was living inside him. That's the end result. Once you start looking, you will end up living. And then by the time the angels came down to Sodom in the first verse of the 19th chapter of Genesis, Lot is not just living in the city, he's sitting in the gate. That's where the people did the most activity, where the leaders would sit, the principal men and so on. Sitting in the gate of the city. And by the time you get down to the end of the chapter, around the 30th verse and on, he's not just living there, he's in a cave. His situation has become so desperate and terrible things came out of that series of choices that he made that started with just looking. Getting a longing building up in your heart. That's what happened with me. I just slowly moved away from God. And I'm going to tell you, I wasn't remembering all the things God had done for me. I wasn't thinking about how God delivered me. I'm going to come back to this story, try to wrap this up. But I wasn't thinking about what happened to that bullet. Anyone with common sense would have to think something supernatural occurred for that bullet to not enter my body and to go through the seat where I was at and be nowhere to be found after that. Something supernatural occurred. And there's only one being that has the power to do it. But I wasn't thinking about that. I had turned my mind away from God. And one day I was sitting in the room and this is just the grace of God. This is going to come back to what I said just a moment ago. And that is that you cannot count on God keeping you if you're going to leave his covering. You can't count on it. He might love you enough to do it. He loved me enough to do it. And I believe he's loved a lot of people enough to do it we could have testimony after testimony of people that have made missteps and God just brought them back. You can't count on God to do it. But I'm going to tell you, when he reminds you, I was sitting on a couch in my living room and somebody had just invited me again for probably the hundredth time to come to church, come back to church is what they were really inviting me because I'd grown up in church. Somebody invited me again, come back to church. And it was a meeting going on. It was in the late 80s and Brother Jolly had come. And I hope you don't remember what I looked like in that meeting. I hope you don't. It's 30 years ago or more now, but somebody invited me to the meeting. You know, there's going to be a lot of ministers. Why don't you come and just see? Just come and see. That's a good invitation, you know. Just come and see. I didn't want to come. You know, I was sitting in that living room. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere. And I only gave you a couple examples because I don't want to be up here long. All of a sudden, out of nowhere, every one of those things God had done for me, including that bullet disappearing, started to cascade down through my memory. It was like an avalanche. One thing after another, I filled you with the Holy Ghost. I kept you when your own father left you. I protected you. Bullets passing by you, one fired directly at you times you should have probably been in prison and other things because of the lifestyle and the attitude that you had and the constant warfare going on in you. I protected you again and again and again and again and all of a sudden it struck me that even though I'd forsaken God he had never forsaken me. Now that sounds so simple but you know when that thought struck me it broke me. I sat there and felt the weight of all those experiences come down on me. And I felt God say to me, you forsook me, but I never forsook you. You cut your love off from me, but I still love you. And as odd as this may sound, I was sitting by a window with the window open. And all of a sudden, for the first time, it seemed like I hadn't been hearing the birds outside, the crickets. All of a sudden, I could hear outside all the birds chirping. And I just felt like life just rushed back into me. And the song came to my mind that the Gaithers sang, my faith still holds. All that faith I thought I'd lost. And you lose your faith, you'll lose your faithfulness. Yes. That's the product of losing your faith. If you stop believing in what you're doing, you're not going to be able to be faithful to it very long. Don't lose your faith in what you're doing. This is a special calling, young people. This is a special calling. Don't lose faith that God's called you. Don't lose faith in God's purpose for your life. And Brother Ellswick and so many of these messages we're referring to. Don't lose faith in what God is doing in your life. Even when there's dark times and troubled water and difficult conditions. Don't lose faith. If you really believe in the one you're following. You really believe in what it is you're doing. You'll be able to be faithful to it. God wants you to be faithful to the end. Not just in the beginning of your walk. He wants you to be faithful to the end. And that just buried me under that avalanche. It just broke me under it, remembering all the things God had done for me. And he reminded me, who but I could have saved your life? Who else but me could have done the things that I did, that you're still standing here alive? And when he did it, it just broke me. And I knew I had to go to that service that night. Came in that service. (laughs) This is what I'm hoping no one would remember that far back. Came in that service with a whole line of gangsters with me. I probably had six gangsters with me. All of all different stripes and sizes and shapes and oddities. I still had my long hair, rough as could be. I doubt Brother Jolly even recognized who I was back there. As different as I might have looked when I was a child. And went and sat in one of the back rows. And right in front of me was one of the young ladies in the church, Sister Charlotte Akins. She had been out of church too during that time. We'd, We'd all been hurt by some things. And had excused our choices. Listen, you can be hurt, but that does not excuse you making the wrong choices. It doesn't to get people off the hook that did wrong things, but it doesn't give you the allowance to do wrong things yourself. We were both sitting there. She was right in front of me, and I had this whole line of thugs sitting there with me. And right in the middle of the service, he was preaching about something. He stopped, just stopped what he was saying, looked out. He wasn't even talking about anything evangelistic. Looked out and pointed right at where we were sitting and he said, there are people sitting here right now that God is saying to you, it's time for you to come back where you belong. And just went right on with his message. You know, that shook me down inside. God had already broken me, so I was open. You know, you have to be broken to be open to God. Something has to be broken open. The layers you build up over yourself. Listen, you get to a place when you're coming down these prayer lines and you're feeling too stiff or you're feeling guarded and you're holding yourself. Come on, break through that. Break through that. Break through that. There's freedom on the other side of that. That's not a protective measure for you to hold yourself against God touching you. The power is on the other side of you surrendering. Power is on the other side of you yielding, not holding up too tight. Let God have control. Let God touch you. And I did that and God restored me. Told you that song came to me. My face still holds unto the Christ of Calvary. That blessed rock of ages cleft for me. That brought me back right to the relationship where I had been at and restored back something that honestly, young people, there is no merit whatsoever in my standing here that I personally did anything to be standing here in front of you. Whether I was a youth sitting here, a minister standing here or sitting in the pews, I've done nothing to merit being a part of this. But, you know, God loved me and I know he loves you. Coming right around full circle to this statement that were made that started this meeting and run all through it. My grandfather laid down his faith in my heart. I didn't accept it. And he was a powerful man of God, a man of great integrity. Every one of us, I hope, would say that about our forebears. But I believe it. I lived with him. He laid it in my heart, but I rejected that faith. But what an incredible thing that God would restore to me something so precious I had rejected. You want to talk about the prodigal? That faith was laid down in my bones. And I'll tell you what, generationally speaking, I was third generation in this body. My grandfather and Brother George White were the first part of the church in Green, what was in Akron at the time. They're two families and they were the co-founders of the work. And they are the ones that made the connection with Brother Sodders and with the other ministers. And that was a part of my legacy. But let me say this before I close anything I'm going to add here. And I want to read something from this 145th Psalm that Brother Gillespie brought up before I do so. But it struck me heavily here lately. We talk about generations and how generations change. And without a lot of effort, every generation without effort will be weaker than the generation that preceded it without effort. There is a decline, a generational decline that just occurs in terms of what a first generation does. And the second generation usually appreciates it, but they don't do everything the first generation did necessarily. Third generation starts to consume and have an entitlement type of a spirit, and they're not making any sacrifices. They might be thankful for what they have, but they're not investing a lot in it. That's a dangerous place to get where you still do have appreciation, but it's not enough appreciation to give anything to yourself. Well, thank you for providing for me. I'm not going to do anything on my part, but thank you. And then eventually you get to a point where you just desert it. You just leave the whole process. We don't want this body to be the product of generational decline. We want this body to get stronger with every generation. And I hadn't thought of it in these words before. Maybe you, brethren, have thought of it many times. But it hadn't struck me this way before. We usually say, what generation are you? My wife goes back further in this body than I do. You know, Brother Ross, her family. She goes back probably five generations, maybe six generations. on how you'd count it. My children are now fourth generation. We've got some in here probably our fifth or sixth generation. That's a great honor and don't misunderstand what I'm about to say. But we don't want to be second, third, fourth generation. Everybody needs to be first generation. Now what I mean by that is the first generation is the generation that will give everything for it. That's why the second gets to receive something. That's why the third gets to still receive something. We need to not just be one of the generations and receive some of what the generations of us passed down. Let's be first generation Christians. It doesn't matter when you came in, have the type of mindset that I am going to give everything I have to this until the church is restored. The job is not done. You can't just sit back and receive everything that's been done. We need people to stand up and work, be faithful in your attendance, faithful in your giving, More importantly than anything else, faithful in your faith, stand for the truth, have a life of integrity, be a first generation believer, whatever generation you might find yourself in. And I started saying, I wanted to read this here from the 145th Psalm. I'll do that and get out of the way here. Didn't want to be up this long, but I think it's very interesting bracketing what Brother Gillespie had mentioned here in this statement where it says, one generation shall praise another or praise thy works to another and shall declare thy mighty acts. That's an important thing. We need to remind the generations to come. It's part of what this meeting's been about, reminding the generations to come of what God has done. I'm trying to do that telling you some of my testimony. Those are mighty acts, none of mine, all of his. Mighty acts, God. That's a mighty act to save someone's life as dramatically as he did mine a few times. It's a mighty act. We want to remind the generations, our God is real. Our God loves us. Our God cares about us. He'll take care of you, young people. He will. When you're dealing with peer pressure and other conditions pressing in on you, don't leave God because of the peer pressure. God's who will take you through it. God's who will get you through the condition. And on the other side, you'll be far better off than you were before. But here in this 145th Psalm, I just think it's interesting. And I'm going to close with this. Notice what it says all around this Psalm. In the very first verse, I will extol thee, my God, O King. Listen, who's doing this extolling? I will bless thy name forever and ever, day by day or every day. How does it say it there? Every day will I bless you. And I will praise thy name forever and ever. Who's doing this? I am. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised that his greatness is unsearchable. Tucked right in the middle of this. One generation shall praise thy works to another and shall declare thy mighty acts. I, here it comes again, will speak of thy glorious honor, of thy majesty and of thy wondrous works. And men, and that men's in italic, so it may or may not be intended to refer to others, might be still intended to refer to us. There'll be individuals that shall speak of the might of thy terrible acts and declare thy greatness. Listen though, this is you doing this. That's what I mean by first generation. Don't just count on this generation to pass this on. It's got to become so much a part of who you are that you can pass it on the same way we're trying to pass it on to you. I will bless the Lord. I will praise the Lord. I will extol the Lord. That's not just my father doing that or my grandfather doing that or the generations that came before me doing that. I am going to do it. I'm going to stand for God. I'm going to take a stand in this world. I'm going to lift up his name. I'm going to be the one that the generations to come are going to look back to. I'm talking to you. I want you to say I'm going to be the one. I am going to be the one that the next generation to come on will say, I can do it. They did it. I can stand. They stood. I can make it. They made it. Praise his holy name. Stand for God, young people, stand for him. Be a first generation in this day that we're living in.